Now, Lord, we ask indeed that you would send forth your word, um, that even as we study your written word, Holy Scripture, would you make manifest to us your Son, Jesus Christ, and all it is that you have done for us through him. Thank you, Lord, for him. Um, We thank you for the love that you extend to us through him. And even now, as we examine his trial before Pontius Pilate, would you draw our hearts ever closer to you, ever nearer in fellowship and love. Um, And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, we have been in looking at John's gospel and John's account of um, what's called the Passion Narrative, which covers chapter 18 and chapter 19 in John's gospel. There are a couple of different things. What are some things that you've noticed about um, where we've been and how things are different. I remember the first, the first lesson we did on chapter 18. Do you remember I asked you in the questions from the week before even just to list out the actions. They left. They went into the, um, across the Kidron Valley. There were so many action words weren't there. Um, and it was sort of, I don't know about you, but I got whiplash in going from sitting in the upper room for so long, for so many chapters and so many lessons, and now suddenly it's like we're on the go. We're on the go with Jesus, and um, it's zero to sixty almost. And so the action is very fast, beginning in the chap, beginning at at the beginning of chapter eighteen. And do you remember what happens in chapter eighteen? Even if we just flip back, what was that? Jesus is arrested. He's arrested. He's arrested. And where is he when he's arrested? I know, but you know what John tells us that it's actually a garden, which the other gospel writers don't tell us. So it's interesting, this is one of the themes that we're gonna see is that we hear things from John that we don't get to hear from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is really exciting. John is often given a bad rap by a lot of liberal theologians and liberal biblical scholars because he is so theological. He has so much theological material, which we just looked at, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. We saw so much um, theology. And they used to say, well, these super, uh, super liberal biblical scholars would say, well, if you have so much theology, well, it's not really historically true. John is sort of a historical slouch. He's, um, he doesn't really know what he's talking about historically. And they had this idea, well, it's a really late off writing. Maybe it wasn't an eyewitness. Maybe John wasn't the eyewitness um, disciple of Jesus. Maybe he's some other John. And um, what's so lovely about the way we are now in chapter 18 is that John is giving us historical information that the other gospel writers haven't given us. And what that should, that disproves all those liberal scholars who want to say, well, because John is so theological, he's not historically minded. John is so historically minded, he wants to give us alternate names for different places in Jerusalem. He wants to tell us um, more exactly what's happening. And sometimes what he'll do is, it's almost as though he's saying, well, you've heard it, you know, you heard that it happened this way, and yes, it did, but here's some more information about the way it happened. Um, What's one thing that we can point to in the Garden of Gethsemane that we always think of in terms of, well, it happened this way, and that John completely omits? Is there something that you we miss in John's account of Jesus's arrest in Gethsemane that we sort of assume that we know? I mean, we know it happened, but John doesn't bother to tell us because he he knows that we know. Is this very confusing for you? Am I leading you around the garden path? 
Um, yeah. 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 He doesn't. John does not show Jesus um, laboring in prayer, um, laboring in prayer, anguish, experiencing that anguish in his heart and soul, saying, "Lord, take this cup from me." But he does talk about the cup, as you talked about last week, which is so interesting. So he he's obviously been through that anguish and that time of prayer. Could you not watch with me one hour? To the three disciples, they fall asleep. John doesn't tell us any of that, but it's almost as though he assumes that we know that it happened, which is really cool. It's yeah, like I've already, they've already told you. So I'm, I'm just going to tell you other details. And know. in writing the Gospels, that was precious space. You only had a limited amount of space on those scrolls. If you're writing scripture or, or just writing a letter, you only had a limited amount of space. I know none of you tweet. But Twitter is almost like Facebook, except that the status update, I know, I'm just going way, way, way 21st century now for, for a brief moment. Don't get whiplash. So, but when you tweet, you, um, you only have, I think it's 140 characters or 160. And you all know me well enough to know that I'm nothing if not verbose. And so for me to try to be concise enough, I'm, I've never really gotten into tweeting because I, why have 160 characters? I want more than 160 <laughs> letters to be able to talk about whatever's going on. Um, and so you think about that with the gospel writers and the, um, with Paul, when Paul's writing his letters, you have a certain amount of space on your papyrus, on your scroll, to be able to write this letter, in the case of Paul, or um, this gospel, this good news, to share with these um, believers or people who are going to become believers. You wanted to optimize your space. So John doesn't bother. He says, I know you know. I'm not going to tell you again. Why don't I tell you something else? Guess what? Not only was Jesus um, betrayed by Judas by a kiss, but in the way he portrays Jesus coming forward, he's saying Jesus was also in, entirely in control of the situation. Do you see that at the beginning of chapter 18? Jesus walks forward. Who do you seek? Who are you? And almost as though he is the one challenging those who have come to arrest him. Whom do you seek, he says. And then when he tells them who he is, they fall down. Jesus is here in control of the situation. Why would it be important for John to show Jesus to be in control of the events in chapter 18 and 19? What does that tell us as Christians or as budding Christians, as baby Christians or maybe almost Christians? He's fulfilling his destiny. It is a part, what is going to happen next is a part of God's plan. Absolutely. Anything else? I thought I heard some more. Jesus is God himself. He is in control of the situation. There's another um, modern argument against the cross, which would say, oh, poor Jesus is just a victim. Uh, you know, I've heard of some people even, some liberal theologians will say, well, the cross is like, I'm sorry to disturb you with this image, but like cosmic child abuse. Mm -hmm. The father says to the son, you go to the cross. Jesus here is no victim. He's not passive. He has already um, examined the cup willingly, lovingly, obediently, and even um, whole, wholeheartedly um, said yes. Because um, not just because it's the Father's will, but also because he knows it's the only way to um, bring uh, sinful human people back into relationship with a holy God, with God the Father. Any questions about that before we move on to anything? 
We're going to see this, um, that Jesus, what else, um, there are other things in chapter 18 that show Jesus to be in control. As we moved down, there were two, we saw two trials um, before the Jewish leaders. We saw a little bitty pre-trial before Annas. Do you remember that Annas was the high priest, the father-in-law of these other gentlemen who had been high priest, and the current high priest chosen by the Romans was Caiaphas, who was Annas' son-in-law. It's very complicated. But the Jewish people understood the high priesthood to be in office for life. So once high priest, always high priest. So in their mindset, Annas is still high priest, even though Caiaphas is the high priest in the eyes of the, Jew- of the Romans. So it makes sense that John is giving us more information than the other Gospels have given us. I think the other Gospels didn't want to confuse us with that, and that's fine. But John is showing us that Jesus is first brought to um, the real man in power, Annas, behind the scenes. And um, we see Jesus before Annas. And, um, and what is he asked at that, at that point? In verse 19 of chapter 18, he is asked about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus deflects the question there. Do you see that Jesus doesn't answer, or he doesn't even mention his disciples? He is continuing to protect those whom the Father has given me in fulfillment, again, of what it says in verse 9, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That's what um, John says in order to interpret how Jesus goes forward in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, leave these men alone. Don't, don't take these, don't ignore these men. They have nothing to do with this. You know, take me only. And again, before the high priest, he is defending his disciples. He is laying down his disciple, his life for his disciples. And so he answers very, um, he challenges very strongly what the high priest is asking him by not just giving an, an answer in return. He says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. He's pushing back, isn't he? He's pushing back to the high priest. He gets struck in the face with, um, because of that. Um, and then in the other Gospels, we see that Jesus is brought to Caiaphas, and not just before Caiaphas, but before the whole Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy, whether it's a really official trial or sort of like a quick, it's not yet daylight, let's really get this train moving. We already decided what we wanted to do about this person, which we saw in chapter 11. Do you remember that after Lazarus's um, the raising of Lazarus, and if you saw my film again on Sunday, I showed it again at church, um, there's this moment, there's this intermediary scene at the end of chapter 11 where this same council, the same group of Jewish leaders, meets to say they're wringing their hands over Jesus' popularity after raising Lazarus. The whole world has gone after him. What are we going to do? And Caiaphas there said, it is ex- it, it's expedient for us that one man should die on behalf of the whole nation. In other words, if we don't get rid of this man, Jesus, then the Romans are going to come in um, and take over the leadership from us and give the leadership to someone else because we couldn't keep calm the unruly people of Judah, of Jerusalem, of Israel. Um, and so you see this, um, this sense of expediency. They're going to do do away with Jesus in order to maintain the peace and in order to protect their leadership as endorsed by Rome. Any questions about that? So we don't see the trial before um, Caiaphas and before um, the 70 leaders. Um, But then at the end, in um, verse 28 of chapter 18, where do we go from there? Where do they take Jesus after that? To Pilate. to Pilate. 
why, and we talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, why would the Jewish leaders take Jesus to Pontius Pilate? This is where I'm looking, or I'm still in context. My goodness, Deborah, still in context, but still in context, like, <laughs> we'll spend all our time setting it up. Um, looking at the character motivation, I don't know if you remember, but I look at, because I worked on this passage for my thesis for seminary, I, I looked at it in terms of um, a theatrical lens because I was looking at translating it into a film, a Jesus film. And when you're looking at things from a theater perspective, whether you're a director or an actor, you have to ask, especially as an actor, you have to say, why is the character that I'm playing doing what they're doing? Um, bad acting is just doing on stage without any sense of motivation propelling you. It's the motivation that propels us to do different things. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I find myself doing that. Yeah, I know. Whether for me it'll be, you know, the bag of chips. Can't just put, can't, what is the leg? Can't eat just one. Do you ever have this moment where, and I consider that a Holy Spirit moment where I think, why am I doing this? I don't, I don't want to eat these. I don't, I don't want these chips. I'd like a glass of water, that's right. <laughs> Even though maybe I really would like the chips. But asking ourselves, why am I doing this? What, what is my motivation is really a helpful thing to ask because very often when we look inside our own hearts, we find our motivations aren't very simple. And often we might think that we're doing something good. Um, even our obedience to the law is very often motivated for selfish reasons um, because then we can feel good about ourselves, then we can um, check something off the list and say, well, I did that, I'm a good good Christian woman, I was able to do this and thus and such and this and such, and then you're measuring, you're measuring yourself up um, rather than relying on God's grace and saying, oh, it is done for me, I am loved no matter what I do or don't do. And then out of that place of being loved, then the doing comes freely without um, that selfish motivation of self-justification. Um, just a little theological sidebar. But when looking at this passage in chapter 18 and then as we're going to continue into chapter 19, I find it really helpful to ask, why are the people in John's gospel doing what they're doing? What is motivating them? What is motivating their action? And especially in relationship to Jesus. And um, it's going to be especially important when we talk about the Jewish leaders who John calls the Jews. It's almost like a technical term for the Jewish people. Um, have you noticed this about John's gospel, that when he talks about um, the Jewish people, he says the Jews, and very often in John's gospel, the Jews are usually hostile to Jesus. Have you noticed that throughout? Um, so a lot of people have talked about this, and um, just so you know, that term, the Jews, was not used necessarily in that day and age to signify anyone of a Jewish ethnicity. Did you know that? It was actually just used to identify the Jewish people living in the region of Judea, which in Palestine, Judea, um, is the area surrounding Jerusalem. So the Judeans are specifically that, that part of the people of Israel, and specifically that part of the people of Israel who resided within the little province that Pilate oversaw. We're not talking about Galilean Jews. We're not talking about Hellenistic Jews. Or, or Israelites, as maybe they would have said then, we're talking about Judean Jews here. And John is using it, John, when he uses it, remember that John has used other terms in a technical way? Do you remember another word that John has used in a technical way? I'm going to do the Greek word. 
How's that? Do you remember that word that just the world? How, what does that mean in John's gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in any part of the re, the rejection of Jesus, the part of creation that rejects Jesus and even rejects God's lordship over all creation. So the part of creation that rejects God. I often think of it as this. God, you talk to the hand. (laughs) How immature. But isn't that in our rebellion, in our sinfulness, when we do that, there's a little bit of the world inside our own hearts. There's a little bit of the world even within the church, unfortunately, and yet we'll be purified um, by the end. There's a lot of the world in the world, isn't there? In our media, in our politics, in our foreign policy, in whatever we do as a collective group of human beings. There's even a bit of the world in the environment, um, in the earthquake that happened last night in Nicaragua. That's not the way it should be. It should not be that way. There should not be thousands of people stranded from their homes, afraid for their lives. That's not the way it should be. Okay, so there's another, um, there's another technical term in John's Gospel, which we've just been talking about. The Jews is a technical term specifically for um, that part of the Jewish people that rejects Jesus. I'm going to say segment. That segment of the Jewish people. more specific. It's not an actual, biologically, they're not a race so much as an ethnicity, because mm-hmm. they're still Caucasian, but there's this ethnicity that characterizes them so much culturally, um, linguistically, mm-hmm. um, religiously. There's very di- distinct um, people group. They're a distinct people group. John is not talking about the distinct people group, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because Jesus is Jewish. Mm-hmm. And all of his disciples at this point are Jewish. There are no Gentiles even on the radar screen. The Samaritan woman was the closest to God in John's Gospel, and she was still sort of Jewish, um, but not entirely. So when John is talking about the Jews, he's talking about that segment of the Jewish people, specifically, that rejects Jesus. The, prob- the reason why I feel like it's important to delineate this is because for centuries, um, uh, the danger has been that as Christians we would blame the Jews in general as a people, as an ethnicity, for the death of Jesus. And that, that's problematic. That's, that has spawned a lot of violence um, against the Jewish people. And so in the way that I started to write my thesis, in the way that I asked, well, why did Jesus die? Why were people so intent on bringing about his death? Um, my, my hope for us as an audience, if we're an audience hearing John's gospel or seeing a film based on John's gospel, my hope is that we would not be um, drawn into an anger against the Jewish people for this rejection of Jesus, but rather our hearts would be moved with sorrow at their loss in rejecting Jesus Christ. 
um, that, that, um, and truly in the way that John shows us what's about to happen before Pontius Pilate, um, the tragedy is that the Jewish people, and the, specifically this segment of the Jewish people that rejects Jesus, which is made up for the most part of leaders, religious leaders of the Jewish people, don't see who Jesus is, don't realize that he is who he says he is, not just a human Messiah, a human Christ, um, an anointed king for the people of Israel, but even more than that, that his claims to divinity as the Son of God are also legitimate claims. Does that make sense to you? How sad that they couldn't see that. That is the tragedy. And I think we all too often get angry when the, when the fact of the matter is that um, on the broad scale of things in God's wider plan, it is the sin that resides in our hearts, each one of our hearts, that brought about Jesus' death. Um, so we cannot blame a specific ethnicity or people group. And as we're going to see in, um, at the end of chapter 18 and then moving on into chapter 19, that um, their rejection of Jesus is in fact a tragedy. So too is Pilate's rejection of Jesus. And I'm going to explore that especially now. But just to recap, do you remember why? We might have said this two weeks ago, so it might be a little rusty. Do you remember why I tried to show or how I tried to show you that um, the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus is a tragedy? It's at the very end of chapter 18. They're presented, aren't they, with a choice. Do you see the choice that they're presented, Mary Kay? Are you looking? Yeah. But, the, but uh, the Jews wanted Pilate to take responsibility for it because only yeah. Pilate could, only Romans could crucify. You're right. And you <laughs> said, you remember from two weeks ago. Why? Why? Why, why did they, why crucifixion for Jesus? It's, I know, even talking about this, because he's our Lord and Savior, even talking about the why and the nuts and the bolts and what really happened, it almost feels. Um, if though we're touching on holy things because we are but it's still helpful to hold on to the holiness and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice for us devotionally and in a theological sense even while putting on our historical head and saying well why no really why what drove them to seek out crucifixion for Jesus what was the standard what was the accusation against him in their mindset Blasphemy. And what was the punishment for blasphemy in the Jewish law, in the Torah? Stoning. Have we seen that happen already in John's Gospel? Where have we seen Jesus almost stoned? The Father and I are one. We're going to pick up some stones. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, that's a claim to divinity. That's using the divine name, probably. Um, and and why, why was stoning so important in... Um, the ancient Israelite law. Why did God say you have to? Um, this has to be done. Well, first of all, in that day and age, um, there was during that era of the people of Israel when they were living out those laws, which we no longer uphold. But when they were living out the laws in the Pentateuch, they were essentially a theocracy. We we no longer have any such thing as a theocracy. They were God's people, chosen to be his people, not only as, um, as um, his religious people, but also as a political nation. Um, it's the only time in history where we see God definitively endorsing the politics of one nation and saying, you are totally mine. Um, 
whatever you do, I do. Whatever I do, you do. We're united. Um, and it's hard for us to imagine because our church and our state are separated today. Um, so we can't even imagine how um, in ancient Israel the kings were religious leaders and the priests were political leaders. They were both united and melded together. We see a little bit of vestiges of that um, today, especially in Massachusetts. Massachusetts was a little bit of a theocracy. I mean, Massachusetts had united church and state as the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as the Massachusetts Bay Colony, where the Puritans set up their own government and they would um, institute um, legal fines for, the, um, for their religious laws. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't moral laws that are um, Christian that we reinforce as a nation, as the American people, but it's very different from ancient Israel. Only time in, in, Israel's, uh, in the world's history when um, there's been such a theocracy and such a union of church and state endorsed by God. That's a really big statement. Do you want to push back on that? Yeah. So the, oh, what about Islam? Is that considered a... They would say that, but wait, do we believe in that? But I mean, they are, in their own belief system, a theocracy. That's yeah, so you're right. Yeah, that's right, Judy. They are. They really are. And, you know, sorry. They are. Yeah. Yeah. And in scripture, you see that that's how um, the Israelites understood themselves. That's how they were to be understood. So um, in that t- day and age, if you committed blasphemy, it was a legal problem. It was a political problem. It was a religious problem. And um, today, um, the Catholic Church and any church will excommunicate someone, right, for egregious sin or um, something that will lead people astray and confuse people. Well, um, the the consequences for blasphemy were like the ultimate form of excommunication for them. It was as though they were saying, "We cannot have people misunderstand this. This is you cannot um, blaspheme against God." Um, it's so hard. This is like probably the most depressing Bible study. So I'm sorry that we're talking about it in this way. Um, so they're motivated. They not only want um, to show um, they want they want um, Jesus's blasphemy to be silenced, but they also want to prevent other people from going after him. Do you remember what we said two weeks ago about what would prevent um, what would keep them what would keep the people of Israel from going after Jesus even after his death from him being made into a hero? Well, the crucifixion. And we saw from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, which we looked at two weeks ago, that um, death by hanging crucifixion was no new thing in the ancient world. It was a form of execution that was familiar all throughout the Mediterranean basin, all throughout the ancient world, in Persia, in Babylon, and that it specifically what it did was it um, demonstrated a person to be under a divine curse. And so not only would you not, would, was that person shown to be a blasphemer or treasonous, but then no one, they were set up as an example. Don't be like this person, um, because then thus and such will happen to you. So they, they really wanted this um, form of death for Jesus because they wanted not only to silence him, but also to stamp out the, the budding Christian movement um, that was not yet identified as Christian among Jesus' disciples and followers. So we see that motivation um, with the Jewish people, and they go so far as to even choose a Messiah who is a different kind of man entirely from Jesus. At the end of chapter 18, Pilate, remember that Pilate is outside or Pilate, they're at Pilate's house, right? And I drew those steps. And remember, Pilate is here. 
and I put him in a little Roman skirt. <laughs> and he had a big, he had toga and a big plume on his head and a sword. Pilate is here, the people are here, the Jewish leaders and the crowd, and Jesus is inside being questioned by, by Pilate. And Pilate goes inside to deal with Jesus and question him outside to talk to them, inside, outside. And John is showing us this movement of Pilate. We see he is so indecisive. He does not know what to do with this man Jesus. And we're going to look at that in the remaining 25 minutes. Um, because um, Pilate, um, in engaging and encountering with Jesus, he is like so many other people in John's Gospel who have had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus. Who are those people? Can you think of some people who've had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus throughout John's Gospel? Lazarus, yes, and even before Lazarus was raised, his sisters, they got to have, do you ever have this moment where there's someone you really, really want um, to spend some time with them, and you're like, if I could just have a one-on-one -on -one with this person, if I could just bend their ear for a moment, I think the Lord would really use that for me. Well, there are one-on-ones um, with Jesus, and we see Mary and Martha, In chapter 3, there's someone who comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus. Yeah, Nicodemus gets a one-on-one. -on -one. Who else does? Chapter 4. Yeah, the Samaritan woman. That's pretty huge that a Samaritan woman would get a one-on-one -on -one with a Jewish rabbi. <laughs> what about Peter? Peter gets a one-on-one, -on -one, even in the midst of the upper room, as Jesus is washing his feet, it's almost as though John zeroes in on this one-on-one -on -one interaction between Jesus and Peter. What does Peter say? Don't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Jesus, and then Peter says, wash all of me. Love Peter. Um, can you think of anyone else? Is there anyone else that I'm missing? It's almost as though, though the woman caught in adultery gets a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Doesn't she? Everyone else. Disappears. Do you put down Lazarus? Yes, Lazarus. Um, can you think of anyone after the resurrection? Mary Magdalene. And Peter again. Uh huh. Well, all the disciples. And Peter yeah. another time when he when Jesus tells him to get getting back on these things. Yes, that's definitely one. Um, although that's in a different gospel, mm -hmm. which is interesting, because then you see John has a particular way of using these one-on-ones. Mary Magdalene, and also, how about Downey Thomas? Mm -hmm. It's in the room, in the upper room with all of them, but Jesus is speaking directly to him, and it's cutting through. Um, also, what about the calling of the disciples in chapter 1? Isn't there a disciple that Jesus has a one-on-one -on -one with that pretty much changes his life um, and makes him say, you're the, you're it. You must be the Messiah. Um, remember uh, Nathaniel? I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, have all of me. Basically, Nathaniel, so here's an, an Israelite without guile. Um, Nathaniel drops everything to follow Jesus. 
So we see with all these disciples, and maybe disciples, is, he, is Nicodemus a disciple or not? That's a question. But we see them engaging with Jesus one-on-one, and we're going to add Pilate in. Pilate gets a one-on-one with Jesus, and for each one of these people, it changes their lives, and it pushes them to um, either lean in with Jesus and move forward and say, wow, there's something about this man. God is doing something through this man. I don't fully understand it, but I believe. Help my unbelief. With Pilate, we see that he believes, and we're going to read chapter 19. And um, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, we see him say twice. Two times he will say, I find no guilt in this man. He even says it once at the end of chapter 18, which means three times he says, I find no guilt. And he has said that also in Luke's gospel. He says, I find no guilt. He's torn. He has to make a decision and quickly about what to do with Jesus. And the mob outside is just growing in number and in loudness and in their clamoring for Jesus' death. He shuttles back and forth. He's indecisive and confused. And we're going to read now chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. And I'll read a couple verses, and then I'd encourage you to pop up and read a couple verses. And... Um, And we'll go all the way to verse 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard these words, he was more afraid. They entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not are you not speaking to me? Do you know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered you to me was the greatest Upon this, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, 
Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to the crucifixion. Do you remember Pilate's question in the verses at the end of chapter 18? There's been interaction between Pilate and the mob and then also between Pilate and Jesus. And this is the continuation that we just read of that. In the, in verse, um, in the verse at the end of chapter 18, let's see, it's verse um, 38. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? Jesus is talking about the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate is having a dilemma. He is trying to figure out what is truth? What is the truth here? Is this man innocent or guilty? And if he's guilty, what is he guilty of? And who is he? Who is this man Jesus? And by the end, by verse 16, he has made his decision. Um, and it appears that it's as though there's one level of reality in the way John shows what's happening. It's like there's this lower level of reality. This is what we can see and know. This is what Pilate is discerning is going on. There's a mob, there's this man, um, and he has to make this decision. But then um, from where we're sitting, while we read it, while we hear it read, there's another level of reality going on, and it is an eternal reality, not just characterized by um, the circumstances that Pilate is dealing with. There is an ultimate reality, and Jesus is alluding to that ultimate reality. He's going to point to that ultimate reality. And John, in the way he's telling it, is going to point to that ultimate reality. And he does that in the first three verses where Jesus is um, taken. Um, the people have already um, chosen Barabbas as the prisoner to be released. Barabbas is a robber and a revolutionary. And that's the kind of leader that they want, not Jesus. Um, so Pilate is still hoping to release Jesus. And so we think that he has him flogged. Um, and it says in the other Gospels that he has him flogged in order to evoke the pity of the crowd. That they would say, you're right, that's enough. We don't need, you know, this man does not need to die. He takes, um, he has his soldiers take Jesus. And there we see um, this is kind of like a mocking coronation. Um, if Jesus is the king of the Jews... This is a mocking coronation. They twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They robe him in a royal robe, a robe of a royal color, only purple. Um, purple was only used for kings. And in the other Gospels, they, are, they even given him a reed, like a scepter um, or a staff. And they come up, and instead of in a real coronation, you would acclaim the king you would um, really legitimately say, Hail King! And your allegiance would be made known through that, through that exclamation of Hail. They come up to him and they say, Hail King of the Jews, even while they mock him and they hit him in that acclamation. In these three verses, um, John is showing us that there's this level of reality down here. And then we, up here, as we read and see, we're given heavenly vision. We're given divine insight into what's going on. Because what is happening is that these soldiers, they think that they're mocking Jesus. But we know more than they that Jesus is, in fact, the true king of the Jews. And so as we look on, as we see this, our hearts hurt, don't they? When we see the real true king of the Jews there, um, falsely and, and um, mockingly crowned when in fact his coronation is one of absolute glory. He's king 
over all the earth. And one day he will be revealed to be the true king, not just of the Jewish people, but of the entire of, uh, sovereign over all the earth. And we'll see that in when Jesus returns in glory. And so there's that reality that we can see and perceive, and our hearts are burdened for those who speak more truly than they know, who are blind to the truth of who Jesus is. Um, so that irony, it weighs upon us, and it moves us even to actually have a true acclamation of Jesus. I don't know about you, but even seeing Jesus mocked in this way makes me say, no hail to the true king. He is the true king, and he elicits not just our acclamation, but our worship. So there's a little vision on that double reality, that double truth, and we're going to see it again when we look at true authority and the true judge. But as we move through the verses, looking at verse 7, um, what did the people say um, to Pilate in verse 7? He has brought Jesus out to them and said, Behold the man, which there's a whole Jesus film about that one phrase that I won't even go on the bunny trail to talk about. Um, and in seeing Jesus, does this vision of Jesus crowned um, and it robed, does it elicit their pity? No. It, um, it pushes them even forward. Um, they must have this, um, the death of this man because of his blasphemy against God and um, his treason against the people of Israel in their minds. That's what they believe. Um, and Pilate says for the sec second time, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no, oh this is the third time, no guilt. The other time was in verse 4. I find no guilt in him. He says, I find no guilt in him. The response in verse 7 uh, of the Jewish people, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. This is an interesting statement, isn't it? Do you see what Pilate's reaction is in verse 8? What does John say about Pilate in verse 8? He's, he's scared, and he's even more scared, which is interesting because John hasn't told us yet that Pilate is scared. Pilate's now really scared. He was scared. Now we're finding out, oh, he was scared. Now he's really scared. Why is he really scared? Well, now talk about our technical term. I'm running out of room. The technical term for son of God, um, for it means one thing in a Jewish mindset, but to a Roman, anyone who worshipped a pantheon of gods, remember, we think of the Romans as being sort of these automatons, atheists, all about structure and order, and they didn't really have a religious system of belief. No, in fact, they were highly superstitious. They worshipped a whole pantheon of gods. Remember the Greek pantheon of gods that then was translated into the Roman pantheon. And their whole worldview was, well, you better worship this god, and then, oh, you don't want to get um, caught in an earthquake, so you better worship this god and cover your bases. And then you'd like to have ch children, well, you better burn incense to this goddess because you want to have babies too. So all of these cover all your bases, worship all of these gods, this anxiety of um, if you don't worship the right gods and all of the right gods, then someone's going to get you. And so here Pilate is. That's his mindset. That's his worldview. And in that worldview, the gods not only existed up high, but they also came down. And remember all of the Greek myths about the gods um, masquerading as human beings. And what happened when <laughs> the human beings around them didn't give them due um, respect? Well, there was, there was havoc. Those gods, those troublesome Greek gods would come down and wreak havoc on the poor human beings that didn't recognize who they were. So if these Jewish people are saying to him, he's the son of God, he says he's the son of God, and Pilate really believes he's innocent, 
Pilate might believe that he is standing potentially before one of the Greek gods in flesh. He's scared because if he doesn't do the right thing, he's toast. Um, so he could just be zapped at any moment. So of course he's even more afraid. Um, and I'm going to skip over true authority and the true judge to look at this other term, friend of Caesar. Well, he goes back inside, right? He goes back inside and he asks Jesus, where are you from? Jesus will not speak to him. And this is where we get from the other Gospels that Jesus is silent before Pilate. It's this big question because this is the moment where Jesus could say, if, you, if Jesus said, you know, if Jesus did any one of his many miracles at this one moment, he'd be set free. Because Pilate fears the gods. Pilate fears the consequences of um, doing something horrible to a god in flesh. And so, um, so this is the moment where, where it could all be over. And Jesus is silent. He says nothing. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. He's silent. And, and yet, even so, Pilate is pushing him and goading him. You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus, right back, he's in control. He is God incarnate. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. There is this level of reality on this lower level in which Pilate thinks that he's the judge having to pass judgment on Jesus when in fact Jesus is the eternal judge. In this setting, Jesus is the real true judge. And John is giving us a window into this. Poor Pilate thinks he's the judge, thinks he's in control, thinks he has authority. And yet, above and beyond, Jesus is the true judge in all authority. And Pilate himself will be judged based on what he says and does about Jesus, on how he demonstrates belief in Jesus or how he does not. And he can't see that. And yet, John, in showing us um, this interaction in this way, he's giving us, as hearers of the Gospel of John, a little window. Because we, too, think that we're judges of our own lives. We think that we're in control of our own lives. Um, and yet, our um, eternal destiny truly um, hangs on our, um, on our belief in Jesus. Do we believe that he is who he says he is? Um, do we believe that um, he is the judge? He will come back as king um, in every, the hearts and intentions uh, of every man, woman, and child will be judged according to God's law, and yet, even so, according to faith in Jesus. There are two ways of standing before Jesus, the eternal judge. One is to say, I've covered all my bases, like like Pilate. I did all the things I thought I needed to do, um, and in still even living in that fear. Maybe there's one more thing that I ought to do. If I don't do it, then um, I'm toast. That's the one way. And yet Jesus is about to provide another way for those who look to him and look to his saving work on the cross to say, um, let Jesus' work be for me. Um, let m- the work of my own hands um, be hidden in the perfect work of, um, of the cross. Pilate cannot um, believe. He is worried. He is anxious. He has no insight into this double truth, this real truth, ultimate truth, um, and the double reality of what's going on. And then when he goes back out in verse 12, um, the, the Jewish leaders really stick it to him. That he's he's now finally between a rock and a hard place. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Caesar's friend was another technical term. Um, And Pilate, we know from other historical sources that Pilate's relationship with Caesar was in question. Pilate had received a great favor from Caesar to be made governor of this horrible outpost in Judea. 
um, with this unruly people. Um, he had been given a promotion. He was expected to serve Caesar wholeheartedly with his whole life um, and in order to pay back um, the benefit that had been made to him. I spoke recently and taught recently on the movie American Hustle, which is sort of like a modern mobster movie. It's, it's, that's a whole different story, and I won't even go into it. But in this one great line, um, one of the worst con men says to one of the mobsters, um, never take money in exchange for something. Always take a favor. Is that, is that, and here, Pilate is Italian. Not to be, I'm not trying to, it's like, you take a favor. Pilate owes Caesar the biggest favor of his life. And now the people that he rules are threatening to go around his back and tell Caesar that he's not living up to um, his whole job. His whole reason for being there is that he is going to serve Caesar wholeheartedly. And that threat um, in his weakness, this threat of not being a friend of Caesar, um, really scares Pilate. That's what does it. He's operating out of fear here. If he, um, and this is also partially out of his religious beliefs. Because in that day and age, they had started um, this worship of the Caesars. They started to worship the emperors, just to cover all their bases, right, superstitiously. Well, there's this pantheon of gods. We might as well put Caesar up in the pantheon of gods just to cover all of our bases. We'll worship him. And then they really began to make and really enforce later on, um, the emperors would enforce throughout the provinces of the empire that, that they could worship whoever they wanted so long as they also worshipped the emperor. And so that um, unquestioning obedience and um, that accol- the accolades, the acclamation, the worship that they thought ought to be due to the Caesar, um, to the emperor Pilate, is, um, his loyalty is in question, his religious beliefs are in question. Does he really believe that um, Caesar is the son of God and that um, the gods in the pantheon need to be worshipped? Or is there something about this man standing in front of him? So what we see is that there's this tragedy Pilate caves under this pressure and the anxiety and the fear of what will happen to him either at Caesar's hands um, or at this potential God's hands. He's caught between these two anxieties and he caves under the pressure and the fear of what Caesar would do to him if he didn't get rid of this man. He, um, that fear draws him away from a godly faith in who Jesus says he is. Um, and at, right after those words, he sits down. Verse 13, when Pilate Heard, heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. Now it was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And even though he is about to condemn Jesus to death, he's still sticking the knife in these opponents, in the Jewish leaders. He's still twisting it. He's saying, you forced my hand, I'm going to make it hurt for you as well. And he says twice, he says, behold your king. He continues to talk about Jesus as their king to make it rankle, to make them hurt, to make them real, um, to really push in the knife. Behold your king, and they spar with him again. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Jesus and, and Pilate says to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" He says it again. And he elicits this reaction out of them. We've already seen the tragedy of Pilate's own disbelief in Jesus. And he ends up being one of the only ones of these in a one-on-one moment with Jesus who completely turns his back and says, no. Uh, 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 and, and it's sad because you see that he actually wants to believe in Jesus. He would like to believe in Jesus, but he doesn't. He, the pressures of the world and his own fear make him um, disbelieve in Jesus and turn Jesus over to death. 
Um, so that's part of the tragedy for Pilate. The tragedy for the Jewish people then is that they proclaim, as he's twisting the knife and saying, shall I crucify your king? They have goaded him. He is goading them. The chief priests, specifically, John is so specific here. It's not just the Jewish, it's not the Jewish people, it's not the Jewish people in, who reject Jesus. It is specifically those chief priests who would be involved in the Passover liturgy. And in the Passover liturgy, they would repeat parts of the Old Testament scripture over and over again that said, you, O God, are our king. You are sovereign. You are, O God, are our king. And that Passover liturgy really came out of the Passover that drawing them out of Egypt. Is Pharaoh our king? No. Yahweh is our king. Are any of these other kings our king? No. Yahweh is our king. So the people of Israel repeated this liturgy for centuries. And they had even, these same people, repeated this liturgy just this week. Yahweh is our king. Then what do they say in verse 15? They betray their own beliefs. That's the tragedy. In order to bring about Jesus' death, they commit apostasy themselves. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Yahweh is not our king. Caesar is our king so long as you crucify Jesus. So we see um, there are two levels of reality. There's this sort of what is going on in the natural world and then really what is going on internally. And we see that tragedy. That's meant to move us um, with pity for those, not just whether they're Jewish or anybody, who doesn't believe in Jesus and to pray and say, oh, Lord, would you reveal to those around me who don't know you the truth and the majesty of who you are? Lord Jesus, would you reveal who you are to those around me that they might have faith in you? Um, So even as we go forth this week in preparation for Holy Week next week, that can be the prayer on our hearts. You know, our Good Friday offering is given to churches in a church in Jerusalem um, that specifically is about proclaiming the good news in um, the Holy Land so that those who live so close to where Jesus lived and died would hear and maybe um, put their faith and their trust in Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Uh, who died on a cross for the whole world. So so let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we see you. Give us eyes to see you as you really are, in all your majesty as king, in all your humility as that lamb going willingly um, to the block. And so, Lord, even now as we go out from here, would you um, root and ground us in your love for us, We give you thanks. Thank you that you were willing to endure, endure before Pilate and even keep silent when you could have, with a word from your mouth or an action, completely unraveled the whole course of events. You could have walked through the crowd totally unharmed, and yet you stayed put. So I ask now, even, Lord, as you send us out to our lives, to whatever else we have today, would you give us that grace to stay put um, wherever we are, wherever we need to be, wherever you want us to be, even as we proclaim you as our Lord and our King. You are our King, Lord Jesus. Thank you and we praise you. In your name, amen. Amen.